0: got maybe five parts for today's podcast. Life advice, going to tool last night, recap. Also, what's going on with Frank Vogel and the Lakers, but more importantly, S.H. Fernando Jr., his book, From the Streets of Shaolin. It's the history of Wu-Tang. It's also really the history of how hip-hop took over the Bronx and how it spread through the boroughs. Um, this is an incredible book, one of the best books I've read. We've got to spend an hour with the guy. so enjoy. It's Ryan Rosillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.
0: I want to talk about this Frank Vogel situation because the rumor that he's going to lose his gig... um, because anything other than what's happened with the team, as if it's up to him, uh, is laughable. And that's what I said yesterday on Twitter. Uh, now, there was a report from The Athletic that talked about his departure being imminent, essentially, and then an LA Times article backed that up with a source saying, quote, a bad loss to Utah might have been the final straw, essentially. So we're looking at a Monday night outcome against the Utah Jazz where it's arguably the Lakers' best win of the season. That that somehow saved Vogel's job? Well, that feels a very temporary solution, uh, because if you're already... Having sources again, the sources could be wrong, but it was multiple places, people that are a little more plugged in to the Lakers day to day part of it. That you know maybe Vogel is you know another bad week and the guy is done. That's kind of the way it feels right now. That feels like the safer part of this. Um, And we can also point to the contract where when you get a one year tacked on extension after you won an NBA championship. That means the team probably isn't super fired up about you long term. And then on top of that, inside of industry circles outside of it, anybody with a brain that's been watching the NBA, when Fizz deal's added to the staff late, you're like, Okay. Um Here we go. I mean, the extension tells us everything we need to know. And so the Lakers are, as we sit today, 22 and 22. They're an eighth seed behind Minnesota. Uh, They lose the tiebreaker to them. And my biggest point is even an average Anthony Davis. All right. Not this version. That's arguably this season, the worst season we've ever had of him in his entire career. And whatever you think of him when he's healthy, he's really good. Um, And he hasn't been good this year for whatever reason. I don't know if it's because he got bigger, because he got sick of being called soft and a million different things, but Anthony Davis, four more wins, is thats is that delusional for me to suggest? A better Anthony Davis gets you four wins, and that would be probably a five seed, which I know is not what the Lakers are about. But the reason this whole thing got combustible in the last couple of days is because of a very predictable move. Lakers suck. They get smacked. They're giving up points to all these bad teams. They get destroyed by Denver this weekend. And Magic Johnson tweets out, um something that's very magic johnson and we'll read that tweet for you after being blown out by the nuggets 133-96 we as at lakers fans can accept being outplayed but we deserve more than a lack of effort and no sense of urgency owner at genie bus you deserve better all right this is one of my favorite things and it's not even about magic johnson it's it's my favorite uh, chemistry of content that happens where it's bad thing happens Person with some following goes, you know, this bad thing is bad. I'm going to tweet that it's bad. Applause. I don't get it. Uh, Magic even shut down the comments on this one, which was an impressive move uh, in general on this. But I, I can see it all the time. You know, it's different topics. Sometimes they're worldly topics. And I'll see people with huge followings and they're like, this thing that is bad is bad. And then it's like, 10,000 likes and it's just whew, magic, you know, content. So then LeBron James is like, wait, I can't have magic send out a tweet that this is unacceptable. I too have to let everybody know. So 21 hours later, LeBron James tweets out hashtag Laker Nation. I apologize. And I promise we'll be better. Well, they haven't want to know Want to know since. So you have the magic part of this where his connection to Lakers, which may be as strong as any one player at any NBA franchise in history. And by the way, as a player, I love Magic. I actually think he's a little underrated. Nine finals, I think, in 12 years during his main years. That's that's an incredible stretch. Um, and he's going up against one of the all-time franchises, their peak with the Celtics in the 80s. So who knows what kind of numbers Magic may have had, you know, again, avoiding one of the all-time greats in that collection of of what the Celtics are doing in the 80s. Uh, so anyway, the point is, it's like, I get why Magic does it, but I I also think it's pointless and he can't help himself. And LeBron, who does have a tendency to, as things are going bad, kind of separating himself, almost like the defensive assignment that's screwed up. And then he looks at the guy in the baseline with his hands out. Um, LeBron, there's almost this protective instinct that he has, because if this thing were to get worse and worse, You'll just see LeBron. You know, may not sit with everybody in one moment to kind of prove some point. Uh, I was reading LeBron's quotes about Vogel's future, and it was very specific in that it was never a "Hey, I've got Frank, and Frank's got me, and we're all in this together." It was it was like, "Hey, Frank doesn't care about that. We know who he is. He knows who, he knows who we are." So there's never going to be this hundred percent full endorsement, uh, because again, I think people are looking at Fisdale going, "Is this guy actually going to take over?" When Frank Vogel was in the health and protocol situation. Um, at the end of December, I thought it was really interesting when Fisdale filled in as the head coach. They had that win against Houston. Fisdale was talking about LeBron playing center. And granted, the Rockets couldn't understand a back cut for like 30 minutes in that game. Uh, You would have thought it was Will Chamberlain scoring 100 points. And I'll admit that my sensors kind of went up, and I was like, ooh, wait, is he praising LeBron a little bit more than you normally would, knowing that he'd be in line if Vogel were up? So we have all of that out there. Um, But let's get back to what this really is. It's a fucked-up roster. Of all the things I get right and all the things I get wrong, one of the things I absolutely nailed before the season started, once they got done signing all of these players with real resumes in this league, despite their age, real resumes, guys that when they look in the mirror, they don't think, you think DeAndre Jordan thinks he's done as a basketball player? Of course not. You think Rondo thinks he's done? I count 14 players that would have thought they would be in the rotation. And that includes Kendrick Nunn, who hasn't played. That's impossible. The first time I started talking to anybody in front offices, 2003, I remember talking with an NBA GM, and I was just asking about roster structure. And he said one of the smartest things, and it's held up everything. This is indebatable. He's like, look, you got your eight guys you're going to play normally in a rotation. you got nine and ten who could play depending on the matchup foul trouble, or you're changing things up a little bit. But after ten... Guy 11, 12, 13, 14, maybe even 15, they kind of have to know who they are. It can't be young, unproven guy who's desperate for his next contract. It has to be young, unproven guy that's just fired up to get gear from an NBA team, a veteran who knows he's never playing and his career's over. You can't have 14 people. that are all wondering where their minutes are and all wondering where their next money is coming from. All right. And so when they put the roster together, even though I was like, OK, I guess they're trying to get flexible. They're trying to do different things with bigs when the rest of the league is going small. But it, it's it's still it still doesn't make a ton of sense how they're going to do this. So I thought, you know, what? I bet the first couple months, even if everybody had been healthy and even if Westbrook wasn't a total disaster, if there was some slightly better version of Westbrook that. It would still take him a couple months before he decide, hey, I'm sorry, you know, vet, who with all these accolades, you're going to be losing minutes to Austin Reeves because he can shoot and he can defend. Um, you know, Avery Bradley's going to be really important in certain defensive matchups, so he's going to be ahead of some of the other guys. Hey, Mello, you've been really good at knocking down threes. There's going to be some defensive matchups. Maybe we can't handle having you out there against another young wing. All right, so I thought these things would happen. Instead, it's been a disaster beyond that. And two of the biggest reasons are, one, Anthony Davis, not being healthy, and when he actually did play, was terrible. And then the other part of it is Russell Westbrook, who, again, I don't even know who's left on this part of it because off the ball, nobody respects him from the other team. He doesn't cut, doesn't set screens. Um, When he actually is with the basketball, you never know what the hell is going to happen. And the last time he was really consistently like crushing it, it has to be him in control of everything. That's just never going to happen in this setup. And it was really interesting in that Utah game, right? Because Utah's up late, and Utah's kind of going through their own little weird stretch. And again, they've had kind of missing pieces along the way. But Utah is blowing the lead. The Lakers come all the way back. 10-day Stanley Johnson is crushing. And Westbrook's still not back in the game. And he hadn't been in the game for a long time. And I'm like, man, is Frank going to keep him off the floor? Is he not going to bring him back? Because the right basketball move would have been to not bring Westbrook back in that game all right, both based on the way he played this year and the way that specific game was playing out. And he kind of brought him back in like after a play because it, it felt like Vogel was trying to cheat to get however many extra seconds of non-Westbrook basketball knowing that because of Westbrook's stature and still what is standing is in this league and both with this team, he's like, oh, I, I still have to kind of bring him back. And when I said you, you still have to bring him back and people pushing back on me, you don't understand... Let me introduce you to a few entry-level NBA podcasts, because if you can't understand why Westbrook has to come back in the game at that point, even if it's the wrong basketball move, then you know you don't understand how the NBA infrastructure works. But he's still trying to get away with all these minutes. Now, Westbrook came in. The Lakers won the game because Avery Bradley hit a big three. Stanley Johnson had a nice play. Um, Westbrook actually brought the ball up with under a minute left, a game clock, up two possessions. And he decided to go coast to coast. He got the and one of the layup flex winner. It was completely the wrong move. Even the Lakers announcer was like, no, what are you doing? And yet in that moment, Vogel's probably thinking, do I try to save my job and not bring him back in? (laughs) And then he's like, wait, do I lose my job? Because if I don't bring him back in, then guys are going to be mad at me for not bringing him back in. Even if that night it was the wrong basketball point. So, when you add all of this up together, it doesn't seem like Vogel has a great chance of retaining his job unless we think some super unpredictable Lakers run is coming that doesn't seem to make a ton of sense. The problem is, if you're Vogel and you're the head coach of Lakers, this isn't even about Vogel. If you're the head coach of the Lakers and things aren't going right, you know what's going bad. Everyone around you knows it. You know what's going bad better than any single person because you're in charge of the team. But again, the problem is, that you're one Magic Johnson tweet away from millions being like, oh, that's right, the bad thing is going bad, and you're going to end up out of a job. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope, now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack, And it has been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is, I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time, said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand it's all in front of me, all done. I do not even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient The Streets of Shaolin, The Wu-Tang Saga. It's one of the best books that I've read in the last year. The author is S.H. Fernando Jr. And we're going to spend an hour talking with him. All right, Skiz, thanks for doing this with us today. Respect. Pleasure to be here. All right, so let's... My favorite part of this book is that you go... Because the Wu-Tang is impossible, right? It's impossible. We're going to get to that later. What they accomplished, what they did... Their approach, uh, the originality, the influences, and all these things. And what you do through the first hundred or so pages is you lay this foundation of understanding who they are, right? And that's what's so brilliant about the book. So let's start with the early 70s. We're in the Bronx. We've got this Jamaican DJ kind of MC, but we're not sure what to even call it. Um, You know, historians will look at it as kind of the, the timeline of the birth of hip hop, but DJ Cool Herc. And what he did, what, what this movement and how it started. Let's start there. Well, you know, that's, what, that's to
2: me that it, the birth story of hip hop always blows my mind because, you know, it came from such humble beginnings. And you look where it is now. It's like a pop culture behemoth. You know, it's just like it's taken over the world. I'm in Sri Lanka right now. And people, you know, I see Wu-Tang symbols here. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing the, the the reach of hip-hop, you know, from, from coming from this small, impoverished section of the Bronx and then how it was able to proliferate and just, you know, bring everyone in. And it's like, you know, now it's like everyone, you don't have to be from a certain place to be hip-hop. Everyone is kind of a participant of this culture, you know? So that's what, so that's why I wanted to kind of lay the foundation and show kind of hip hop's humble beginnings and also kind of establish the Wu Tang's connection to that original old school era, because the connection is definitely there, you know, and um, hip hop is all, it's, it's about adding on, you know, different, different eras of hip hop obviously now we're we're approaching almost like 50 years of hip-hop I and mean, that's that's crazy you know that this that this music has become such a cultural movement and every generation kind of adds their own kind of interpretation and you know brings a lot to the table so you know a lot of people wonder why I start out the first chapter without not even kind of talking about Wu-Tang but You got to understand the foundation of hip hop to really understand where Wu Tang is coming from because they represent that they represent the next part of the next extension of that foundation.
0: And that's, that's really what it was. It was, it was learning how to take breaks and extending them. And then all of a sudden, like the rhyming part wasn't even really the purpose, right? It was more of, all right, while I'm doing some stuff. Like I'll just kind of, talk a little bit and have some chance and then that evolves into what it becomes which is actually kind of the craziest part of all of it exactly it's as you said it started with the dj clive
2: campbell aka dj cool Herc, came to the bronx when he was 12 years old from jamaica you know and he grew up uh you know with that sound system culture you mentioned before that you had been to jamaica and that you know, when you were down there, you saw the big speaker boxes and everything. That's the culture down there. It's a, you know, anyone who's been to Jamaica knows it's a very poor country. You know, maybe, especially back then, maybe not everyone could afford a radio. So the sound systems were were, were like a community service in the ghetto. That was where you heard music. And music is such an uh, important part of Jamaican culture and Jamaican life. You know, it's a musical culture. So uh, you know, there even there are different eras of reggae. You know, from ska and uh, rock steady, then moving into reggae, and then into dub, into dancehall. So the music in Jamaica has involved has evolved almost kind of simultaneously as hip hop is involved, and they're cousins. So they've they've they, there's there's such a cross cultural influence between the two, and you know you have so many Jamaicans in New York. And especially like in the '70s and '80s, I kind of go into it in the book in the, um, I forget which chapter, but I was talking about the kind of the evolution of the cocaine trade. You know, that was that. You know, the 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 gangsters in Jamaica kind of brought that to New York, and the the drug culture and the music culture were so intertwined. You know.
0: Yeah, like it starts to make sense for me because it was me kind of going back in time. Like I remember being a kid and listening, you know, we'll get to some of this a little bit later. Like the Poor Righteous Teachers now with more of an education and reading, I'm like, oh, this is what these guys are saying as opposed to some junior high kid in a basketball layup line, you know, or understanding Boogie Down Productions at KRS-One and, and and how much Jamaican influence that he had, but also just something as simple as the chains of run DMC and then being like, no, no, we, we're emulating some of this, this Caribbean culture um, that's influencing what we're doing. You had a note, though, that I thought was really interesting about the Sugar Hill Gang (laughs) as that became, you know, a mainstream consumable song that that reached out, which for anything to grow, you have to then go outside of your hardcore base and get other people interested the background of that song. I, I guess. I don't. know, Maybe I read it wrong, but it's not nearly as impressive as maybe it's held up historically. But can you share with us the story of like how that came together? Because it seemed almost more like a gimmick that completely became really successful. It
2: was. It was totally a gimmick because um, you know Sylvia Robinson. She was a former R and B singer. She had a label, Sugar Hill Records, with her husband Joe Robinson, and um, I think her niece or something. You know, kind of introduce her to the, this rapping thing that was going on at the time, and it was to, it was kind of totally a novelty at the time. Not not many people were doing it. It was still pretty much in in Harlem and 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 in the Bronx. You know, you had in Harlem you had DJ Hollywood, Eddie Chiba. So you know, Sylvia being the the kind of savvy um, you know record producer, record label owner. It was like, okay, I want to record a rap song, you know? The thing is, that had never been done before because rap was always about the party. It was about the live jams in the park, you know? Dudes just picking up the mic and just going off the top of the head. So, you know, I I can never really dis that song rappers delight sugar hill gang because that was my introdu- intro- introduction to rap you know I, I didn't grow up in new york i grew up in, in beaumont baltimore and as a kid growing up there that was the first rap song i heard and that was huge it's like everyone everyone knew that song and if you couldn't if you couldn't be on the playground and recite the rhymes you know you would you would you would you would, you would, you would get a lot of, of of shit from people you know so um and, and 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 kind of ironically, um, so Sylvia, you know, she wanted to make this rap song, and she went about it by trying to find people who rapped, and and you know, she eventually basically put together this group artificially. She took three guys who, who didn't really know each other. Big Bank Hank was one of them. He happened to he happened to be uh, from the Bronx, and he knew the dudes, the real dudes from the Bronx who were doing it, like Grandmaster Caz, you know, who's still around to this day doing his thing. Uh, Casanova Fly, shout out to Casanova Fly of Grandmaster Caz. So he actually borrowed uh, Grandmaster Kaz's book of rhymes. And in, in, in the lyrics of, Sh- of Rapper's Delight, he says, I'm Casanova Fly. He, <laughs> that, that wasn't even his name, you know? So he took... He wholesale bit the lyric. He took the lyric. Ca- Actually, Kaz gave it to him. You know, but it's kind of funny because Big Bang Hank wanted to be. A- he was a bouncer at a club in the Bronx, and he wanted to manage this group called Coal Crush. Coal Crush was one of the early uh, groups in 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 hip hop, and Grandmaster Kaz was a member of that group. And he said, "I, I know this lady who's who's putting together." Uh, a, a group and sh- and i need i need some rhymes so Cavs like here take my rhyme book so that was the foundation of rapper's delight so even though you know you think of rapper's delight is like a novelty a disco hit the lyrics were straight from the bronx from from, from grandma's to so and you know it was such an infectious tune it was like i mean that that not just in america that that tune was a global hit, you know? And that, that basically introduced rap to the world. So we got to, you know, we got to give it the credit that it's due.
0: You do. I just had never, obviously, I'd never heard that story before. And I, I remember just having the moment as I got through that chapter where I was like, somebody just gave him those lyrics and he was like, yeah, yeah. Here, here we go. Um, okay, see, let's now get to Staten Island. Let's get to Brooklyn. Let's get to all the members. Um, as, as anyone who understands anything about wu Chang, you know, RZA is... Is the spine you know he is he's he's the backbone he's the vision he is he's the one that got this all going and there's a bunch of different stuff that I want to get to there I remember in the doc of mice and men you know I don't know if it was ghost or or because meth is like I remember being at these house parties I remember being at these block parties and just being young and watching guys DJ and play the break and then that led to break dancing and just watching this stuff and being in complete awe I think ghost is the one that says I had one roller skate <laughs> Cause I used to just kind of spin around with a sneaker and then this one roller skate. So most of the guys are in Staten Island. I know Jizza is in Brooklyn and I know Rizza's kind of, you know, jumping from spot to spot. Um, and then he's related to ODB and all this stuff. So the, the other part that I, I love about the book is you go, okay, how did this unique group come together? is you've got the Rizza who all of these, these guys are into music at a very young age. You've got the 5% angle. Which now makes a hell of a lot more sense, you know, and again, learning about it years ago, as opposed to just being a teenager, reciting rhymes, not understanding the mathematics and knowledge itself, and, and everything. Um, and then you have, you know, going to Times Square at this time for New York City's history is a shithole. And he's spending all day watching Kung Fu films and, and understanding the, the Run Run Shaw stuff, you know, and all these different things that, you know, if you understand that history, um, how influential all these movies were. What was it about Rizza that he was able to kind of, you know, take all these influences? Because if you were to describe it on paper and say, hey, I'm going to put nine guys together, we're going to kind of be based on these Kung Fu films. We're going to have this this through line and then we're going to have these branches off of it. Everybody would have said that's the dumbest idea you could possibly have. And I understand, too, is Pris Rakim and, and the genius. They had kind of their own thing but can you kind of take us from this part of just being influenced by all of these things and understanding how to shape it into a thing?
2: Well, that, that's basically the whole book there, but
0: <laughs> i sorry. I didn't, I didn't, I was well, just trying to, you know, for the listener, I'm trying to make sure they understand and play a yeah, Riza,
2: you know, Riza is a very special guy. You know, he's a very special guy. I spent a lot of time with him. He's a, he's a, incredibly sharp, intelligent, uh, articulate guy. Um, And apparently he's been like that all his life, you know, because imagine a a young kid coming with a plan like that. But basically he filtered all his experiences. He he filtered his whole life into his art, you know, which is what any true artist does. And from an early age, uh, you know, you mentioned that, there's the the family connection. I'll spell it out for you. Riza, Riza's grandmother is, is sibling is, is the sister of ODB's father. So they're kind of like not quite cousins, but they are related. You know. On the other side, Jiz, uh, Jiz's mother and Riza's mother were related. So you got the, you got the foundation of these three cousins, Jizza and ODB living in Brooklyn, Rizza living in Brooklyn, and then eventually moving out to Staten Island. Rizza moved so many times in his life. He was like a nomad. So you had, this, this was the foundation of the clan, these three guys. Okay. And as kids, Jizza, is the oldest. He's like, he was born in 66. Um, ODB was born in sixty eight, and RZA was born in sixty nine. So, Jizza uh, in, introduced the other two to rhyming because Jizza has that Jizza kind of had a, his father was from the Bronx, or his father his father lived in the Soundview Projects in the Bronx. So, Jizza actually was the was the was the first person to be exposed to that Bronx hip hop scene what we now call the old school, cool Herc and all of them. Jizza was around for those parties, okay? Disco King Mario, all the old legendary Bronx DJs, Bambada, Herc. So Jizza is kind of infected by this, this new thing called rhyming. He introduces it to the cousins, ODB and and Rizza. And as kids, you know, they were kind of blown away by this. And they were kind of totally, you know, when you're a kid, you kind of get into things deeply, you know, whatever it is. Some people get into sports. Some people get into, you know, video games or whatever. These guys applied that same thing to rhyming. And, um, you know, they used to battle people on the streets. They used to go to different neighborhoods in New York and just battle people on the streets. What you got? What you got, son? Kick some lyrics. You know, that was that was kind of like the scene back then. And then, you know, RZA had this other life where he's, you know, he's a, he, he's one of 11 kids, you know, so going to kung fu movies in Times Square was kind of an escape for him. Imagine, imagine living in an apartment with like 11, 10 siblings and your parents and other relatives. So the Times Square thing was kind of an escape for him, you know? And it it was in the seventies, you know, when Times Square was just freaking scary as shit. I remember, I remember going to New York. I had relatives in New York and, um, you know, I, New York was a very different place then. Like the subway was all tagged up with graffiti. It was a very scary place to be. And Times Square was like, the terror dome, you know, it's like all these hookers, drug addicts on the street, people shooting heroin on the street, you know, hoes giving blowjobs in the alleys. It was, it was scary, you know, and here you got these young kids, uh, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old cutting class and spending the day at these times square theaters and watching these movies. Meanwhile, there's a dude smoking angel dust in the in the next aisle you know someone jerking off back here you know it's just like i can't imagine what that thing that what that was like but anyway they were focused on the flicks on the kung fu movies and you know i was never big into those kung fu movies until i until i did this book and i went back and i watched all of them i watched all of the, the, the same flicks that these guys used to watch and it's just amazing the 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 storylines and the philosophies of these movies, you know, you you learn a lot from watching these movies. You know, you learn a lot about, it's not just about the action, about the fighting scenes, but you learn about brotherhood and loyalty and respect and honor. So these guys would basically watch these movies, be, be in the theater all day watching these movies, and then they'd come out. And also, you know, the Kung Fu is all about battling too. But they would battle lyrics. You know, they would go around battling with lyrics. And also, they're exposed to these higher concepts, you know, brotherhood, trust, loyalty. So they're like, so all of these things were in Riz's mind, you know. And, you know, initially, as you said, he had a solo deal with Tommy Boy. Uh, You know, this is much later on when when they're, you know, when he's 19, 20. Jizza was the first guy to get a record deal on Cold Chillin. But both of those deals soured. They were dropped from the label. And, you know, it's like you're working all your life for something, and all of a sudden, phew, the dream just disappears like that, you know. But these guys were not the type of guys to give up. So Riza was like, you know, he came up with that plan. He said, next time I'm not going into this industry alone. I'm going to come with the team, okay? He already had his, his, his cousins were down. Jizza R- and ODB and RZA, the all-in-together now crew from, from back in the days when they were kids, when they were teenagers. But now, by this time, he had moved to Staten Island to the projects, and he was running across all these other people, Shaquan, aka Method Man, Raekwon the Chef, Ghost Face Killer, who was who was just Dennis Coles back then. You know, I forget, I forget what his first name, what his first rhyming name was. I mentioned it in the book. Um, who else? Original, who was became Capadonna, And he was like, he was looking around him, and him, he was looking around in the past, he was like, man. There are so many talented dudes here, you know? When I I come back in the industry, I'm bringing all these people with me. We're coming as a team, and we're just going to blast through. And it was unprecedented at the time for a hip-hop group of nine people. I mean, that's a lot of dudes, you know? Like, you know, back then you maybe had like Two, two guys, three guys, maybe four guys in a group. But it was unprecedented at the time for a nine-man group to, to blast through. But actually, it wasn't because in the original days, in the old school days of hip-hop, you did have big crews like that. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Funky Four Plus One More. Cold Crush. These were big crews of MCs, you know? Six, seven, eight guys. So Wu-Tang is kind of based on that template. Of the of the crew of the old school hip hop crew, and RZA brought that into the '90s, you know. And just watching all the flicks, you know, he was ingrained with this philosophy. This it's almost like a Buddhist philosophy, you know, because I, I go into that pretty much in the book, also about the whole science behind the kung fu flicks, and you know, Run Run Shaw's. Specifically, his his um, the Shaw Brothers movies. It was they were period pieces, and they brought a element of reality and of Chan Buddhism into the mix. And you know, as a kid, Rizzo was totally influenced by those concepts. And I think it was, you know, and and he, you know, at one point he used to even before the group even started, he used to have all the guys over to his to his apartment in the projects and they used to watch these flicks. So he was kind of schooling these guys, you know? And I think there's, I think uh, I mentioned this in the book too, there was one movie they saw, the eight diagram Hole fighters. Um, and he said that while they were watching that movie, some of the guys actually broke down crying because it's a, you know, it's, a, it's kind of like an emotional tale of how these brothers, uh, how these eight brothers uh, were killed by this by these evil guys, and you know, one, I think one brother survived, and he came back and he got his revenge. And that's to me, that's a story of Wu Tang. You know, one dude who was in the music industry, he got crushed, and that was Rizza, and then he comes back with his whole clan of brothers, and you know, and they and they have such a, a huge impact in the industry because. No one had ever experienced anything like this, and even even experienced guys in the industry. Like I know this dude, this writer, and he was a former A and R Bones Malone. You might you might have heard of him. You know, RZA brought the concept of Bones, and and you know Bones would tell you himself. He even laughed at it. He was like, "Man, what is this Wu Tang shit? You know, what is this? What, you know, what is this? What is this?" you can't have a group with eight, nine guys in it. You know, how are you guys going to eat, man? You know, so it's like RZA just basically shattered all the preconceptions and all the illusions and all the the templates and formulas. And he came with something completely fresh and original and new. And that's why Wu-Tang has had such a huge and lasting impact because they are one of a kind, you know, and they brought such new energy to the game, you know.
0: Before I get to
2: compromise.
0: before I get to to November 9, nineteen ninety three, when Thirty Six Chambers drops. Um, and by the way, credit to you—that's the best answer that I've ever gotten off of my long-winded, not really a question, sort of uh, "Hey, fill in all the gaps here." So, very good job by you, Ding. That—that's—that's—that's that's, that's not easy to do. Um, how real were these guys? Because I, I love when Ghost says, like, he's like, "Ah, those kung fu movies." At first, he's like, "Ah." Eh it's like i wasn't really into him um and then he and raekwon didn't like each other right and which is kind of hysterical considering uh cuban links you know might be my favorite second favorite we'll get to that maybe a little bit later and that those guys go back and forth off of raekwon's first solo deal but explain to us that these guys were were the were not exactly posers on the hip hop scene like these guys were real dudes for a long time and actually kind of carried over once they became successful you know musicians on top of whatever whatever else
2: well all of all of the members of the clan grew up in abject poverty you know um project life is no it's not fun you know um if you if you've been if you've been to housing projects in new york it's. i mean there's 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 plenty of good hardworking people you know who are just striving to get ahead who live there but the projects are also known for just so many negative elements you know drugs crime um you know uh substance abuse um and these you know these guys all each and every one of them grew up in in a bad situation so they 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 really, they really felt the struggle, you know, from day one. And I think, I think once you grow up in that, and you have opportunity to do something else with your life, I I don't think you take that for granted, you know. I think, I think all of these guys are supremely thankful for the for the opportunity that they that they've had. And, um, but you know, at the time when the, when the group is, is still forming, you know, these guys, I'm not, I'm not going to say all of them were drug dealers, but you know, that was, that's, that, that's basically the biggest opportunity for kids growing up in the projects. You know Uh, that's the biggest opportunity to advance yourself. Basically, you know, if you can go on the corner and make, you know, a few hundred dollars a day selling crack, why, why would you not do that? Why would you go work minimum wage at McDonald's and, you know, have some kind of shit job? So, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I grew up in that situation if I would not have also become a drug dealer, you know? So it's like there are certain opportunities that are open to you and you, you take what you can get. So these guys, they grew up in the abject poverty. They had limited opportunities. They took the opportunities that they had and they ran with it, you know, like uh, in Yu God's book, he gets very detailed. I think Yu God was probably one of the deepest into the drug game because he gets very he gives you pretty much a recipe for how to make crack out of powder cocaine. you know. And, and you know, they're very forthcoming about their experiences growing up, you know, and um, that's the that's the reality of it. That's the, that's that's a struggle. You know, that, that that's another thing that you, you see about Wu Tang. In the in the old school hip hop era, it was always bragging and boasting. Oh, I got a Mercedes Benz, I got chains, I got so many hoes. You know, you don't one thing you see in the in Wu Tang is is tales of reality, you know, and even, even all the skits, you know, on that first on the Enter the Wu-Tang album, you know, the skits are are so important too, because those are slices of their life, you know, dudes getting shot and then on the street. And, and, you know, imagine seeing, a, Im- imagine seeing all this violence and stuff firsthand. It's got to have an effect on you, you know? So these guys were, these guys are as real as they come. And I remember, you know, when I was first dealing with them, they were pretty raw, you know, they're, they they're, they're used to a certain environment. And now all of a sudden they're in this music industry environment. And, it it took a while to make that transition you know you know what i'm saying because um they you know they're not they're they're looking at people suspiciously they don't they don't trust everyone when you grow up on the block and you you have to deal with shit like that you you know you're not you're not open you're not trusting people you know you, it's just it just comes with that whole turf so these guys these guys i i would say these guys are as real as 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 they come and and somehow they've managed to preserve that realness. You know, it's like, I can't, I can't say that anyone, any one of them has really gone Hollywood or, you know, you look at someone like, and, and I'm not, I'm not trying to diss Jay-Z or something like that, but, you know, you look at someone like Jay-Z, he's like, a, he's like a big time art collector now he's like, and, and and more power to him, you know, more power to him. He has evolved from, corner drug dealer to now billionaire tycoon, you know? I don't see that even amongst the Wu-Tang now, you know, even though they've, they're all, they're all, you know, very savvy with business and stuff like that. But, you know, they're all doing their own little thing, but none of them is like on that level of a Puffy or a Jay-Z or something like that, where they're flaunting their wealth and stuff like that, because they know the value of a dollar and they know, you know, what it took to get to that place. So I think that's another reason why they have such lasting power because they're so real, you know, even to this day and they don't compromise. And, you know, we love that because it's this, this whole society, especially the whole music industry is so superficial, it's so image oriented and it's so fake, you know? And I think that's, what pe- that's why people gravitated towards the woo because they are so real.
0: And that's perfect because, you know, Riz is putting together all of these beats. He's telling all these guys, like even, you know, you got who's in and out of, you know, getting into trouble. He, he still had his back. You know, there, there are moments and I'll ask about it maybe a little bit later where you just go, OK, but he, he kept it nine deep like he always wanted to make sure. And so then we see these videos of them, you know, inspect a deck off the top of protecting your neck and you're just like, holy shit. You know, and he's sitting in a room with his pad and then, you know, the rest of the guys and Raekwon goes. And, you know, meth's verse on that is incredible. I watched the Providence nineteen ninety three performance the other night and I just got chills again watching those guys like in the beginning, seeing this yeah. crowd freaking out. And I'll admit I remember the date because I, I went down to buy Midnight Marauders, which is to this day, my favorite CD start to finish. The number of times I bought that CD rental car, a different city, I'd be like, ah, oh shit, I'll just go buy another copy of Midnight Marauders and throw it in before we were able to stream all this stuff. I wasn't ready for Wu-Tang. I was like, what the fuck is this? And even I was like, what are the ninjas? Like, what is is this the deal? <laughs> like, what's I don't quite get it. And it was so raw. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. So when it happened, because I was still kind of in this melodic phase and, you know, off of low end theory, I like Midnight Marauders better, which, you know, no one agrees with me on. But what was it like? Like, were you in the city at that point? The Bobito stretch? Like, what was that like when this song and these guys kind of took over at least the city in a way that it just doesn't really happen with rap?
2: I mean... Ryan you said you weren't ready we weren't ready i mean people who were in the it, people who were in the industry hip hop heads weren't ready cuz i talk about the record release party on november 9 1993 at the webster hall in manhattan downtown manhattan and and basically everyone who was anyone in hip hop was there i've never seen so many hip hop artists in the crowd that night and i'm talking ju- generations of artists. I think Grandmaster Kaz from Cold Crush was there that night. Jazzy J, all these old, school. and, you know, New York was, was such at the time that you go, you you know, you know, almost every night there's hip hop shows and you see, you see all the artists, but you knew something was special at this. Cause you, cause everyone who, who was, anyone was there, you know, I'm talking about artists. Then also you had the, all the industry people there, A&Rs, people who, publicists, anyone, everyone who works in the industry. And, like, we couldn't even figure it out. Like, there was, like, about 50 dudes on stage, you know, <laughs> straight out the projects, man. And these dudes, like, scuffed up Timberlands, hoodies, you know, do-rags. No one had seen shit like that before. And we didn't even know who was – because, you know, on the cover of the Wu-Tang, the, first of all, the single had no pictures on the cover. And enter the Wu-Tang, they're all in the, in the masks, you know, the, the stocking masks. So we didn't even know who, what the members of the group looked like. I remember rolling up to that party, though. And guess who I ran into on the corner? ODB. You can't forget that guy because his, his braids were all twisted up in the air like Medusa. And he's got his little round specs and he's got a 40 uh, of O.E. And he's already drunk as fuck on the street corner. He's rapping. He's battling people outside the show before the show even started. And I knew that dude was a member of the clan. I was like, that. Because O.D.B. also had his kind of own reputation, you know, from Stretch and bombido and all that stuff. But that was, that was a uh, cataclysmic event, let's say, in hip hop. Uh the place was packed to the gills. And I remember people leaving that show. They only did like three of, maybe two or three songs. But I remember people leaving that like a bomb had just gone off. Like I'm and I'm talking friends of mine in the industry. We was like, what the fuck is that? And like every Wu-Tang show I went to for the next two years was had that vibe to it. It was had a, a very chaotic vibe. You didn't know when they were gonna show up, if they were gonna show up, who was gonna show up, you know, what fights were gonna break out. And and this was at a time in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s in hip hop. This is when you had to go through the airport style metal detectors to get into the club. Cause people used to bring shit into the clubs, man, you know? So it was, it was a it was a whole different time in 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 new york and they just they just brought the motherfucking ruckus that's all that's all i got to say about it
0: you know this episode of the ryan Racilla podcast is brought to you by mcdonald's mcdonald's french fries changed my life they taught me to want they taught me the taste of anticipation There's no wrong way to eat a French fry from McDonald's, unless you're eating my French fries. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. I I always wonder, because RZA had his disappointments in the Jizza on the record label part of it, with the way that RZA constructed the deal for 36 Chambers, right? You know, so he basically does a Wu-Tang deal, but then he's able to negotiate an option where the nine solo members can do their own thing, which I wonder if it was so ridiculous that the record label that eventually agreed to it was like, whatever, like this is kind of weird and it's not it's not going to matter. Or, you know, also motivated by their own failures, you're like, hey, let's let's negotiate in some stuff that nobody really has asked for and it doesn't really matter. It, it felt like, Looking back, it was a genius move, but in the moment, it actually makes a lot of sense. I think from both sides, whether it was RZA protecting himself and all the members, and a record label having doubts,
2: it was both things, and it was it was very risky. In hindsight, we can say, "Oh, it looks great." RZA was genius; he made a genius move. He took a, he took a huge risk. Let me tell you, uh, what we're talking about is the leaving member clause, which was kind of boilerplate or standard in music industry con- contracts back then, being that if a group signed to a label uh, and the group broke up, the label that they were signed to had the rights to all the individual artists on the label. And that's what RZA managed to delete from their con- from the Wu-Tang contract. And the reason why it happened was because on, on his side, as you said, he needed... From a financial point of view, he needed each of the guys to get solo deals if they were going to have any type of viable career. Because nine dudes splitting the pot wasn't going to make it. You know, they got a they got a sixty thousand advance for that album, split nine ways. That ain't going to cut it. You know, these got each each guy had families to support, and you know they had their own lives to lead. So the genius. That was a genius move, but it was also very risky. Because what if nothing ever happened to Thirty Six Chambers? What if it didn't blow up? What if it just went poof, and it would have been forgotten about? But on the other side of the of the mix, you had Steve Rifkin and Loud Records, and he's also a very important part of the puzzle because Steve is starting this independent label, and he's a very smart dude. You know, he's he he, he kind of pioneered this whole idea of street teams and stuff like that marketing records from the ground up um, but you know he was he was just trying to get on at the time you know he was trying to he was trying to get his label on the map and um, he didn't have a lot of money he didn't have a lot of clout so and he was hungry. So I think that couple with RZA's side of it made that deal happen the way it did. So Steve was able to, you know, Steve was still able to retain a couple artists. He he, he kept Raekwon and he kept Deck, you know, which I go into more in the book. But um, because Steve himself was hungry, too, he was he was able to say, all right, fair enough. I'm going to sign the group but you have the rights to to, to, get, to find everyone a solo home if it comes to that. And it took, it took both of them to make it happen. But if, like I said, if, if 36 chambers had never blown up the way it did, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it, you know? So RZA did take a huge risk. Steve Rifkin also took a huge risk and the risk paid off in, in, at the end of the day
0: met the man it's not surprising uh his voice his presence you know his his crossover appeal um to get the first solo deal i'll admit when tical came out then i was like okay cuz i was working at a music shop and i was starting to warm up it just took me it just took me a little while and then you know i sort of gravitated towards actually the odb solo at the time i didn't appreciate it um and then only Built for cuban links was the first time where i went okay wait a minute like this is this is fucking amazing. So after Cuban links where I was like, oh, okay. Then liquid swords to this day is probably one of my five favorite rap CDs of all time. To me, it's perfect. Um, and you do you know, Adon Rodriguez, the, the voice of, I know no such man is our, is our guest right now. Uh,
2: Kill it. one Oh three Oh four. That was the song. <laughs>
0: yeah, How did a- you get in? How did you get in with them to that point where they'd actually have you on liquid swords? Well, at that time, um,
2: you know, I was writing for a lot of magazines, especially The Source and Vibe and, and Rolling Stone. And it's like once in that in that time, once you develop a rapport with a group, it's like every magazine and you do one article on them, it's like every magazine calls you when they want to do a Wu-Tang piece. Like, you know, so I, so I, I had kind of like, I had done, well, to, to be honest, I, I wrote the press release for Protect Your Neck, uh, which was the first, which was my first, um, you know, encounter with RZA. And also I was on the Gravediggers album. I was on a skit because I was friends with Prince Paul and Prince Paul put me on a, a skit on Gravediggers as a crooked lawyer on Diary of a Madman. So that was the actual first time that I met RZA in the studio. And then you know he's such a he's such an intelligent guy and he's such an interesting guy that we just developed a a good rapport you know and that just carried over and also also with genius um you know after interviewing i I just i just developed a, a very good rapport with those guys and um you know they remembered me and and I just kept I just kept on doing articles for different magazines on the group. So that's how I kind of got in there. But you know, it, w- it was very weird because they were very distrustful of, of journalists, very distrustful of media. And, you know, they were still very caught up in the five percent um, you know, whole whole ideology, white people are devils and shit like that. So, you know, I think um I always develop a good rapport with artists because, you know, I'm a journalist and this is this this is what I do. I, I I used to cover a lot of rap. I used to cover a lot of um, hip hop back in the day, and I, 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 you know, I'm I'm I was used to I was comfortable being in 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 situations that other people might not be, you know. Um, you know, there were certain times when in the studio where the where the where the honey dip blunts were being passed around, you know, angel dust, and you know, I was I was comfortable in those situations. So I I just I I guess that's how I ended up, you know, in there. But that was a me- that was a, that was a memorable time doing that doing that skit for Liquid Swords for sure.
0: By the way, you should tell Prince Paul I really appreciated Handsome Boy Modeling School. I don't think that gave it didn't get the love it deserved. There was some really oh no really- doubt. Really smart stuff on that. Um, okay, you mentioned Angel Dust. Good segue. Because uh, meth in the book, as he admitted before, but that makes a hell of a lot of sense that Angel Dust played a big influence on his first solo effort. Because that is a weird, mysterious, dark CD which holds up and to this day is is one of the ones where you go, it's so different. And man, the amount of work RZA put in to get all these guys, the first five guys to get their solo deals while trying to figure out, you know, the... The, the second album which ends up being forever to get all the stuff done and to make it identifiable based on the MC that he's working with um and still hoping you know there's another, another couple guys waiting on their solo deal with all this um it's just an incredible thing it'd be like writing one of the you know picture of the year and then also writing three television shows that all win emmys while you're working on the sequel to the picture of the year it's just it's unbelievable what Rizzo was able to accomplish and why you can understand it falling off because of his guiding force in the beginning. For sure. I mean, you know, he, he says in a lot of interviews for those first three or four
2: years, he didn't leave the basement. You know, the other guys were going around partying, enjoying the fame. Rizzo was stuck in there on his drum machine and on his on his keyboards and shit, you know? And and that's how he was able to improve his craft to to such a amazing extent yeah that that also struck me how those that first round of solo albums each album was wu tang but it also sounded so different you know he came and he knew those mc's so well that he came with 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 beats that that completely complemented their lyrical skills you know and th- that's something that you can't just take for granted because you know, um, it's, even though it might seem easy to make rap, rap seems like a fairly straightforward kind of art form. Uh, it's actually very complex, you know, especially when you get into situations where you have these dudes with such lyrical complexity, each of the MCs in Wu-Tang have such of their own unique style and complexity and, to 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 bring the beats that bring out that style is just incredible. So yeah, Riza, he was a workaholic, you know. He was in the he was in the dungeon nonstop constantly improving his craft. Every time he finished an album, he would buy a new piece of equipment and master that, you know. And then eventually he became a musician. He started playing guitar, he started playing keyboards he started experimenting you know th- that was always his goal was to to was to become a musician because i think a lot of people in hip hop think that oh you know dudes outside of hip hop don't think this is music you know they don't they don't really give us the respect that they give real musicians who play an instrument so i think rizzo was always trying to improve himself and push it to the next level and that's why. That's why you can't really have a repeat of that era, you know, because he himself has evolved so much as an artist, you know. And then he got into really weird experimental By the time he got to the Bobby Digital, which it was his solo work, it's totally different from that early Wu Tang stuff, right? But I know for a fact that he that he probably has in the vaults, he probably has tons of unreleased material. Cause when I used to spend time with him, he used to play me beats and, you know, some of those beats ended up on albums, but I know a lot of them didn't. So if they're still around, if he didn't lose them in the various floods, cause he's been, there's been floods that have, that have been, you know, that have gotten rid of some of the stuff. Inspector Deck's original first album was totally destroyed in a flood. So uncontro- the uncontrolled substance that you hear is totally different than the one that was supposed to come out. So I'm sure he still has a lot of that stuff in the vaults, you know?
0: Yeah, that's that's really sad. I mean, I hated that for Deck because Deck's the first guy we ever hear. You know, that's our first introduction to Wu. And, you know, I always kind of, you know, and I, I had these thoughts before I'd read your book, and then I still have the same thoughts after the fact. It's like meth crushes it with his first one, but then his solo thing just wasn't the same. ODB has the first one's amazing. I, I again he he wasn't for me in the beginning. It wasn't what I was into. And now I still listen to it and appreciate it. Uh we oh, mentioned yeah. Ray, Ghost, Ghosts, first two are great. Um and again, Liquid Swords to me is like perfect. All right. But Deck has to wait like four years. You know, you gods in and out of prison, Master Killer, like was there there had to be and i saw some of it in the doc but there had to be some massive animosity from three of the members looking at the other six crushing it
2: hell yeah hell yeah you know and they they kind of keep it within the family a lot you know but you, you god in in, in you god's book he goes into it a lot he was he was he was probably you know, him and Master Killer got the, the shortest shrift of it because the, the, they released album, solo albums, like, years later after that, you know? And they, they weren't able to, to capitalize off the initial buzz of Wu-Tang. So I, I kind of feel bad for those guys. And there is, there is definitely animosity because think about it. Um, after, after, the, after the Raekwon album, Cuban Lynx, we see Cappadonna slide into the mix. And he he had a solo album even before You God, and Master Killer, and he wasn't even a member of the group back then. You know, now, now since then he's joined, but he totally slid up. But that was all based on the buzz, you know, because after Cuban Links, the people were like, "Yo, who is this dude Capadonna?" You no, know, we need to hear more Capadonna. You know, so he he kind of moved up in the in the ranks, but. Um, you know Wu Tang. I think the I think the the reason that they're still around too is because they they're so close. They're brothers. They're family. They grew, you know they grew up together. Their moms know each other, and you know family. We we all know family fights too. The you know there's internal fights in the family, and we've seen it. You know we've seen it, and and that's that that's kind of another thing we love about Wu Tang. You know they can they can criticize each other. You know, but try to try someone else. Try for someone else to criticize RZA or someone like that. These guys will pounce on man. You know, because they're 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 loyal to the cause. You know, they they're they're loyal to the cause. But yeah, there there was animosity for sure. You know, got to be real about it. You know,
0: I want to talk about ODB. There's two more things that I want to talk about um, because you know he became this. Whether it was the MTV. Deal where he's in a limo, and everybody remembers this, you know, my generation. You're like, oh, this guy from Woods Angle, dirty bastard, like got a bottle of champagne. He's in a limo. He goes to pick up his public assistance on MTV, and it's like, wait, what the fuck? And it just, he didn't care. But as you point out in the book and anybody that got to know him, like there was this warm side to him where people loved him and his musical influence. Like you couldn't figure out if it was, and I, I think in the beginning you're like, wait, is this guy just terrible or is he actually, is this guy amazing? You know, because his solo, even though it took him two years, his first solo is really great. I mean, it it really is. Once you kind of sign up for it, right. You're like, okay, this is going to be different. It's going to be weird. Um, but towards the end, it's a really sad story. The legal problems were nonstop. He had, The body armor vest felony charge in California. He had all the times he'd been stopped for not having a license, not having license plates and then crack vials in the car. He had another thing in Virginia, in and out of rehab facilities, not showing up to court dates. And then you kind of take us through the timeline of of the very end before he's finally kind of like thrown back in prison again. Can you tell that story? Uh, Because he really was somebody that was like at large. Um, and trying to kind of operate in a daily routine from time to time, and he ends up at a McDonald's where it all kind of goes down.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a real sad story about ODB. ODB, you know, is if I had to pick a, a favorite member of the clan, I love RZA and Jizza, but if I had to pick a favorite member, I would I would pick ODB. I I used to run into him on the street in Brooklyn because I used to live not far from his grandmother's house in Brooklyn, in Bed-Stuy. And I ran into him on the street several times, and he was always by himself. And he was always super funny and, like, super humble, you know? Usually you run into guys that got an entourage around them. They got their boys. But I I tell you, every time I ran into ODB, whether it was in Manhattan or Brooklyn, he was by himself. So this guy was like a man of the community, man. Like people in Brooklyn loved him. You know, he used to he used to stop. His, I, I talk about it in the books. So, you know, he used to stop his BMW at a red light, get out, and just go hand every, hand dollar bills to everyone. You know, that was the type of guy he was. He loved Brooklyn, and Brooklyn loved him. And even though he had, you know, even though he got shot a couple times in Brooklyn, you know, there's a lot of jealousy on the streets too. So. But ODB, uh, and all the clan guys will tell you this too, he was 100% unadulterated. What you see is what you get. Unedited, unadulterated. That was him, you know? He was, that's just his personality. And even talking to his family members, you know, I spoke to his mother, I spoke to his older brother, Ramsey. He was he was like the he was like the life of the party growing up when the, when he you know when he was a kid and stuff like that. The problem is, you know, he also had an addic- addictive personality. You know, so in the beginning, it was just it was just malt liquor. It was just the, it was just the beer and the wine, and you know that's how he gets into 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 the mode. You know that drunken monk mode, but. I think when he eventually got into the music industry and was making a lot of money, you know, that's when the, that's when that whole thing got dangerous because he was exposed to not just alcohol. Now he's exposed to Coke and crack and all this shit. And we know that shit is highly addictive, you know, and highly destructive. So once once that stuff gets a hold of you, you know it just totally changes your personality. It changes who who you are. It changes your priorities, and that's a sad story. That's a sad case of ODB because it didn't have to go down like that. You know, I kind of wonder. You, you know, we talked. Uh, you talked about all the traffic violations he had and stuff, and then they find drugs in his car. I kind of wonder what would have happened if he had a drug dealer who delivered to him or something like that. If he, if it would be the same thing. Because the, the reason why I wanted to elaborate on all the legal woes was to show also that once you're caught up in the system, you're not getting out. You know, once you're caught up in the, in the justice system, there's just like no going back. And, and you know, the whole thing with the vest, wearing a bulletproof vest, this, this is a guy who was shot on the streets twice. Man, if I had been shot, I would, I would, I would walk around with a bulletproof vest too, right? It just so happens that in California, they had just passed a law because a cop had been shot in that bank robbery that you can't wear a bulletproof vest. So here's a situation where the guy is trying to protect himself and then he gets thrown further into the system, you know, with the vest. And then he just kept on Making mistakes, not showing up for court dates, and it just, just, it just, it just borrowed him deeper into that shit, you know. And you know, a lot of, a lot of people now, you know, you, like I'll, I'll give you an example of like a Hollywood star, like what's his name, um, Robert Downey Jr. You know, he was at one time he was a big coke head. And he had, to, you know, he had to go into rehab and everything. And he totally changed his life around, you know. Because he wasn't caught up in that criminal justice system, you know. And ODB's first, I think his first violation, he got into a bar brawl in like the early 90s. That was his first uh, charge for assault. And that haunted him the rest of his life. Because once you have a record, they will not let you. And and then you commit some other act, even if it's a traffic violation, they're going to pull you back in. And then if you miss a court date, get it, get even deeper into it. So that's that's why I wanted to kind of elaborate that whole story of Dirty's demise, because it it really didn't have to be like that. You know, this is just a, a dude who's just a fun loving guy. He 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 never hurt anyone in his life. You know, you can talk to his his mother, his family, all all of the clan. He was he was such a he was such a peaceful, kind person. You know, and he was wild too. I'm not saying he wasn't wild and crazy, but he didn't deserve that. He didn't he didn't deserve to be in in Rikers and all this stuff and in, you know. He's uh, a he was Dana
0: Mora, right for a while. Yeah yeah.
2: Yeah, where, where 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 Tupac Tupac was, um, and you know you take a guy like that, and you put him in prison, and that makes it even worse because now he's around like hardened thugs who are who are gunning for him, you know. And he, he you know he's got to protect himself now. Now he's a he's a he's a well-known celebrity. He's in he's in jail. Everyone's trying to test him, you know. And I'm not saying he's soft, but he's not that type of dude you know Dur- dirty of all the people in the clan, he grew up in a very stable household. mother and father both worked, brothers and sisters. you know, I talk about it in the book. His mom used to make pancakes on the weekends, his dad used to take them fishing. you know he grew- he i don't I, I would say out of all the clan he grew up even though they even though it was hard times, he grew up in the most stable household, you know. And for someone like that to have then uh, to collide with the criminal justice system is just is just horrible and that that to me that's what did it. his whole interaction with that criminal justice system, which is so corrupt and it just pulled him down into the mud and you know obviously on the other side his addiction his his addictions did it as well so
0: I always, I, I may confuse which part of Staten Island it was, but I, I just always thought it was interesting that depending on which project you were from, like one group would call the other guys country. <laughs> and they were still the pro- <laughs> just because they had that little area, that little area in the back where they would talk about rafting and be like, oh, you guys are the country guys, you know? And it just right. <laughs> like, it just for Thanks. me, it seems impossible that just because you had this little swampy area with some brush and some trees out back that, you know, that they acted killing. like it was yeah, Montana. The-
2: Yeah, isn't that crazy? Park Hill. Park
0: Hill. Had that nice land behind it. So the Stapleton (laughs) guys would make fun of Park Hill. Yeah. Have you
2: have you been out to have you ever been (laughs) out to Staten Island? Have you been because Stapleton, man, is scary as shit, man, it looks like.
0: Yeah, I haven't found Stapleton in my Hotels Tonight app. I usually stay Stapleton (laughs) doesn't pop up. All right. Last last thing, Skiz before I let you go. Um it's weird uh, to accomplish something like they did. Okay, this isn't just about selling records. This isn't just about being popular and being famous. This was a identifiable shift in a music where, I mean, to me, like the greatest artists are people that we aren't ready for, you know, that later on you go, holy shit, now I get it what it was that these guys were doing. And they had the immediate impact on top of this stuff becoming timeless for, for a bunch of years. But because it it filtered off, which you touch on in the book, and I think you're incredibly fair about it too, where I was like, I, I wonder how he's going to handle some of the some later releases where everybody's kind of like, it's over. It's we're releasing CDs, yeah, but like, ah. eh, it's not really happening, you know? And there's do they feel I maybe let me phrase it this way. Have they gotten to the point in their lives where they appreciate the magnitude of what it is they've done? Or like a lot of artists, is there still this? unfulfillment of hoping to chase or capture what it was when they were at their peak?
2: Oh, no, I think, I think for sure, uh, at this point, you know, they're all in their fifties. I think they understand the impact that they've had because they've been around the world now and they see that they see the influence of Wu Tang around the world, you know, and what, what, what their whole, you know, to me, they 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 brought it a, a renaissance of real hip hop, you know. And it was it, that's what it, it it had such a lasting impact and it 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 influenced the whole next generation of artists, you know. And I think when I hear them talk now, I think they I think they get it. I think they realize that, yo, you know, um we we, we 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 really did something strong here, you know, and I think that's why also that they're still together. and you know, uh, they say hip hop is a young man's game, but um, something like writing, you know, you get writing as a craft that you get that you get better with with age. so I don't personally, I don't think they've lost it i think I think if they really wanted to, I think if Riza. And all of them could really get on the same page. I think. I think there's another Wu Tang album that we could all really love and appreciate, you know. And I think. I think secretly, I think not even secretly. I think. I think all the fans are, are, are still holding out for that, you know. We know that that era of the '90s, between like '93 and '97, was was the Wu Tang era. But there's nothing to say that, yo, that they, they could reunite and do something, you know, that that's gonna make us nod our heads and say, yo, you guys still got it.
0: Yeah, I I kind of feel it because I feel like if they just said, All right, we're we're doing this for real. We're putting it all it's behind. The, us. It's all the yeah. business
2: shit that's in the way. Cause yeah. even like even like doing this book, now they each have separate managers, you know. So like to get an interview with them it's like you got to go through nine different people you know and it's like and imagine what that's like when they're trying to put together a tour and and get the 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 divide you know it's all it's all money now so that's money money ruined it but you know um they still did their thing and we you know you got to have so much respect as you said for 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 their night if anything, for their nineties output, you know, and maybe, maybe subsequent albums weren't as good, but at least we're happy that they were, that they were still doing, it, you know, because, um, because we love, you know, we love Wu-Tang. We want to see them. We want to see them together. We want to see them thrive, you know? And it's like they are a family and fans have become part of that family. You know? So we, 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 all, we're all, we, all, we are always pulling for Wu-Tang.
0: I really want to thank you for your time today and, and honestly for this book and even for those listening because, you know, the, the podcast that I do, we do a lot of different things, even if you weren't even, you know, like the biggest Wu-Tang fan, the, the history the foundation of hip hop learning about this and learning about the industry and then learning about all these guys that defied the odds and stuck it out and never said, Hey, you know what? Let's just cut half the guys out, which probably a lot of people would have done as you mentioned. And we've heard before their mothers knew each other. So there's a connection here. That's beyond just the art part of this. Um, you do a, just a tremendous job. It's one of my favorite books I've read in the last year or so. So Skiz, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it.
2: Respect, man. Thanks very much. And I, I've, I've enjoyed talking about, it. I could talk, I could talk about Wu-Tang for days. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to spout off a little here.
0: Absolutely. And by the man. book,
2: by the book, you will not be disappointed. You know, you're going to learn about so much besides music, so much besides hip hop, you know, because that's, the, that's a beautiful thing about Wu-Tang. You know, it's like there's, there's so much knowledge, wisdom, and understanding to be gained from, from their story and so much inspiration too, that we can all take, on an individual basis, you know, so respect for that.
0: Right. Some could say it's, it's all the history you need. So there you go. Thanks again, man. Good looking, man. Apple card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card.
1: What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid.
3: So now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required.
0: Before we get to life advice, maybe a little bit of a Tool recap. Saw Tool last night, Anaheim. Um, one of the great live shows I've ever seen. A little bit of a tear back in the music scene a little bit um, between the jazz deal in New York City, a quick stop in Chicago. To see widespread and uh, tool, which is a completely different experience. Um, it's it's a little difficult to explain. Uh, I don't think you can talk it up too much because uh, I, I think even somebody who casually likes your music or just loves good live music, if you say, "Hey, this is gonna, you're about to have like a two and a half hour experience," it's it's going to be different than anything you've ever seen in music. Uh, I feel comfortable saying that because it's it's that good of a scene. Now, the crowd, probably not going to meet your wife there. Um, I'll admit. I'll admit, you know, there's moments where I, you know, I saw a guy just absolutely rocking out to, you know, whatever song, pick a song. And then he's got his girlfriend like holding his arm and he's screaming the lyrics to opiate in her ear. And, you know, then he couple, couple finger symbols up in the air, you know, rocking, headbanging. And then after the song is over, they hug and kiss. And I was like, "I, I don't ever, I don't think I could ever see myself doing that. Like, I would love if my girlfriend didn't want to go to tour with me. Um, But again, if you have that kind of relationship where you and your girlfriend, I mean, there's probably a lot of relationship scenarios that I observe where I go, I couldn't really see myself doing that. Um, But hey, that's great. You guys found something you both are super interested in. Uh, The other way to describe it, too, it's a bit like this music that just marches over you. Um, It's it's just different Um, in a way when they really start getting going. Uh, it's, it kind of reminds me like of a movie from the future. And they would say like, Hey, this is the dictator is coming to address everybody. And then this is the band that plays music while the dictator shows up to address his minions. Uh, it's that kind of power. It's, it's a very powerful thing. And by the way, watching them play and Maynard sing, and you know, he's kind of got a different approach to things. Uh, I can't imagine what it's, what it feels like 20 plus years doing this and having that kind of, not the ego part of it, which is obvious, but the power of, of just dominating a room and creating this sound that everybody is just completely hypnotized by. And then I started thinking about myself as a dictator, which was a weird three minute stretch. It could have just been the vaping around me, but I was like, would I be a good dictator? Would I be, can you be a dictator and like be open-minded about stuff? I was like, yeah, I think you could. You would just be like, hey, we're not we're not doing that. That's a terrible idea. And it's just that's it. There's no debate. Like I think my instincts would be good. And then I was like, you know what? Let's stop thinking about this. And uh, yeah, that was that was tool. So I know you guys have a few questions before we get to life advice.
4: Yeah, so tool. I, I admittedly don't have like a huge like catalog knowledge of their songs. I know like the main ones. I know Sober. I think Schism, right, is, is another b- pretty big one. Um, but I, th- what I remember from Tool was like all the kids that were kind of like on that like weird goth you know, kind of weird fringe line in high chains, school dude. would always wear like tool gear. So I was always like, oh, tool must yeah. suck. And then I and then you listen and then you like grow up and you actually realize, hey, this is like kind of good music. It was like Nine Inch Nails for me, like all the Nine Inch Nails kids wearing T-shirts you're, like that's weird, like that's a little too intense for me. And then in college, I started listening to Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails. You're like, this music is incredible. What like, what was I missing all these years? And Tool was kind of that way. Um But I don't know. I just I is it like hard rock? Like because because did I ever tell you guys I went to Ozfest in high school? And it was actually one of the best concerts I've ever been to in my life. And I'm not even like a big hard metal guy. So it's a live music thing. It was Ozzy wasn't there. It was uh, System of Down, which was great. It was Disturbed, which was great. Uh, Lacuna Coil was there, which is like a smaller type band. Uh, And I absolutely loved it. But we're talking like concert with like 50 year old women with no shirts on, painted boobs kind of thing. It was a weird vibe for a kid in high school. But I loved it. It was like one of the top five concerts I've ever been to. So I kind of feel like I'd love Tool. I just don't know. I don't know if that's the vibe or like what what kind of vibe we're going for.
0: Ozfest trends a little bit older than Tool does, um, <laughs> and you're right. Like when I went to one of the Chicago shows, but it wasn't in the city for Tool; it was outside, and you know it had 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 some Breaking Bad vibes in that audience. Where I was like, "Whoa, um, you know um, what's going on over here?" Um, so yeah, I can get how you could stereotype the entire fan base by just any kind of experience. I remember the first time a kid came in you know, back when I was in high school working at a CD shop and he was like, do you have tool? And I was like, well, there's one in front of me, you know, like who, who, who's this guy and what the hell is he talking about? But what you start to realize is that it's different. Like there's some of the metal hard rock stuff that I think is just terrible. And I won't have an open mind about it, but if you are into music in any way, Like there's a part of you, like any of my friends that were late to it. And I go, no, no, just give it a chance. Don't judge people because you saw a kid, you know, behind Cumberland Farms in a tool t-shirt for seven straight days. Like just, it's, it's a little (laughs) different. It's a little different than that. So, um, are you Googling OzFest, Kyle?
3: No, it sounds great though. Well, actually, you know, it doesn't. Those were all kind of the bands that like, I would have thought it would have been like Black Sabbath or something. It's Ozzy's thing, obviously, right? no it was in connecticut
4: I, I, like he goes to some of them i think at that point this was probably like 2005 2006 um
3: and he would he would pick the big shows and connecticut wasn't the big show for him so he wasn't there all the, yeah all those bands that you mentioned like what did you say 9 inch nails disturbed yeah, uh, that all just it seemed disturbed is great it seemed uh that i don't know maybe it was just the cover art i didn't, never really listened to like all my friends listen to hip-hop that's just what it was like i listened to uh like some 70s rock like in secret like if it wasn't on the if if it wasn't like a a locker room approved rock song guys were like Mm -hmm. what the fuck are you doing so um i don't know i didn't i never really like had the the aha moments with any of these bands i was just like oh yeah that's a weird weird album art and uh i didn't like the first song i heard so sorry nine inch nails i'll never know you yeah, I can, I'm not
0: surprised Rudy got into nine inch nails because some of the soundtrack uh, stuff he does alone uh, oh. is
4: is unbelievable. So
0: he's he's incredible. He did
4: he did, uh, yeah. he did uh, what was it? Uh, Social Network, which was one of my favorite scores and soundtracks ever. It's amazing. Um
0: I got to be honest, I don't know that a ton of guys drive around and listen to a score.
4: <laughs> so I used to, talk to Adnan about this. I think this is why he actually liked me because I'd be like, I didn't like the movie, but damn, it sounded fucking awesome. I remember thinking of that about uh, the Superman movie, Man of Steel. I'm like the movie sucked, but this, it sounded fucking sick. And Adnan's like, yes, yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, I'd imagine not not a ton of people driving around listening to the social network uh, score soundtrack, but it was great. And it was Trent Reznor.
0: One of my buddies used to work out to the first Sicario soundtrack. Which I was like, wow, that's that's pretty intense. All right, let's get to it. Let's do a little life advice here. R at gmail.com. Did I answer all the questions about Tool? I think we covered it, right? Because we've touched I on it so. before.
4: Yeah, so. Um, not finding love at a Tool concert, I guess, noted.
0: No, and I'm not even judging the couples there. I just would see it and go, you guys really found each other. You guys really did. Okay, all right, here we go. Oh, a female emailer. That's right. Recently, my boyfriend, I'm female. I don't know if that changes anything. We'll just, you know, we'll try to be delicate. We'll try to, we'll try to handle this uh, with a sensitivity that is not part of our chromosome makeup, right? It
3: definitely changes something
0: for me. Yeah, it does. Okay. Um, all right, we've already made this awkward, so off to a terrific start here. <laughs> has
4: one girl on and can't figure out how to how right, be right. Cool.
0: The one The one email that we get from a female each month... Um, chimes in and then we already fuck it up out of the shoot. because as i'm saying it's like wait are you saying all women are sensitive like no i'm just fucking making fun of ourselves so here we go how about we start over all right recently my boyfriend i'm female don't know if that changes anything too late uh i've been dating him for three and a half years he told me that i gained weight it's about 10 pounds fine but he said it in the worst way possible by adding that he has stopped being attracted to me and that while i am quote beautiful i am not quote hot come on He's also made some mean comments here and there over the last few months. He's been pointing out hot women. Now I know why. He says he still loves me and isn't giving me an ultimatum, but that he wanted to tell me so that I could do something about it in order to fix the problem. He also mentioned that he's felt this way for a while now. I feel really upset and humiliated. I'm fine with losing weight and want to look good for him. But my head, this is the person I want to be with forever. And it really worries me that his attraction to me can be hurt by something as dumb as 10 pounds. What happens when I have kids and my boobs sag or I age like a normal human being? I've explained this to him and he apologized for, quote, being an asshole, which I really appreciate. He's awesome about acknowledging how I feel and apologizing. Yeah, the problem is how often is he apologizing and stuff? Um, But he obviously feels some type of way about my body. I've started my diet but I just don't know how I can take off my clothes in front of him right now with feeling like he's judging me before I've lost the way. It also creates this weird power dynamic, in my opinion, where he feels like he thinks he's hotter than me and can do better, although he says that's not true. So that's the way she feels. Um, by the way, I hope anybody, any guy that's listening, and I, for whatever, you know, all of our flaws can be in relationships, I've never understood the, the guy who talks down to the person that he says that he loves. You know, if you're not trying to find a way to uplift the other person or make them feel better when things are down, even when you don't even have the right thing to say, you know, that is your role in the relationship. It's not these men that are fucking insecure dickheads that have their own shit and then they try to figure out, well, wait, if I can bring her down to my level, then maybe I'll have more control, more upper hand in the relationship. And if I can convince her that she can't do any better than me, then you know, that'll, that'll give me the power in the relationship. Um, I understand upper hand, not having the upper hand in the relationship, you know, I've been on both sides of it, but for any of the guys out there that do that stuff, um, it's, it's really to hear her words and read this, it's a really hurtful thing. And you could be oblivious, uh, to the pain that you're actually causing somebody, because if she's having all these thoughts run through her head and she's emailing this show, uh, clearly it's been an issue. So as she said, she said, she started her diet um, feels like he thinks he's out of me. She said, although he he says, that's not true. Help. What do I do? I don't think he wants to, uh, I don't think this warrants a breakup. I love him. And I'm glad he was honest with me, but I feel pretty shitty about it in my body. What do I do? All right. Um, I think some people are going to be like, Hey, if he has this in his game, then it does warrant a breakup. Um, it could be a problem and look to be fully, I, I think all of us, if we're being honest, all of us have a moment with the partner um, where there'd be a version of it where you would no longer be attracted to your partner. 10 pounds? 10 pounds is the standard. I mean, who gives a shit? Um it's it's there's a million things going on, and you know, people's people's weight fluctuate anyway. So uh you have nothing to worry about in that part of it. Really, you're asking you know, how do you handle this with this guy? I think I would be super direct about it. You're like, hey, there's times when we make mistakes and we can apologize to each other, but I'm not going to sit here and feel like shit or be second guessing your long-term commitment to me because I put on a little weight coming out of winter and coming out of a pandemic. And his reaction to that would probably be the answer that you need about what it means for the long-term relationship. Like don't be hesitant at all. Be super direct tell him how you exactly feel like, Hey, just so you know, these are all the things that I ran through in my head. And by the way, I emailed a fucking sports podcast to try to get some answers on all of this stuff. And as much as I don't know, you know, the debate of, do we change? Can we change as people? If he doesn't change this, um, because now you're talking about how he, how he out, how he handles this out loud with you. Versus is there some lingering thing in your, in his head where it's actually going to be a problem? You know, yeah, you're not going to have the answer to the second part of that, but how he reacts to this. And if there's any pivot from some of this behavior that you don't feel great about, um, if there's no pivot at all, then you kind of have your answer. Um, Because if you're going to sit there and say, well, I like everything else about him, but I have now all these insecurities because of the way he's talked about my body. um, You know, that's, that's not going to be i mean do you want to come home to that like i always think about relationships this way do you come home and fucking dread it or do you come home and you're excited about it and honestly excited is probably a little too um unrealistic at times but do you come home maybe that could just be the standard do you come home and you regret it or or do you come home and it's like either neutral to happy yeah
3: that's that sounds more realistic yeah less very neutral to to happy
0: (laughs) right right because i've had situations where you just go like i actually don't want to spend time like why what am i doing this is somebody i don't want to spend time with so okay fine like this is i have my answer so it sounds like you um you do want to spend time with this person everything else and honestly her picture came through on the gmail kyle you're right she's a keeper so little ego boost for you on top of this everything else unless it's just an awesome picture i don't know um but yeah I, i wouldn't i wouldn't worry about this um but i know it's hard and it's very simple for me as a guy to say, oh, yeah, don't worry about it, whatever. Um, but that's a pretty tough standard if he's getting on your case about putting on 10 pounds. Um, but some guys are
3: real weird and get and can be dicks about it. Um, all right. I don't know. Kyle, anything else? Uh, just that, you know, when I, when I take the notes for this, just in case we say a name or say something we really shouldn't have, I always put like a life advice, number one, and then the little thing like life advice, number one, Uh, Guy at the speaker with a guy at the gym with a speaker. This one I just wrote life advice number one, boyfriend is mean. And I think that's what it comes down to. I think he might be a mean person. I'm not sure why. Like there are some guys that do this. I don't think it's the old school way of being in a relationship. I don't know if those guys read like a, a chapter in the game and like tattooed on it on him or something and really take it seriously but it's just that's not how we that's not how most people operate and i mean most guys would have the sense to even if it's even if like you know maybe you put on 40 pounds and it is bothering him there's just a you don't do that like there's just like you know there's there's definitely ways to like make it about us and we're gonna get healthier or whatever just to be like i'm not attracted to you anymore because you're you know heavier than you were when we started dating that's just i mean i guess you could it's good that he's no it's not it's not good but like he's being direct but it just means he's got no he's not thinking he's not he's not thinking so i don't i think you should probably leave him maybe cheat on him i'm kidding just leave him um (laughs) well you do have her email now kyle so who knows we'll talk what's up
4: (laughs) look out um i think everything kyle said was right and it's it's it is important to be honest in relationships though like if it you know be honest about your feelings like if you are feeling a certain way let the other person know and honestly in, in the case of like weight or appearance or even just like you know if you're if, if you're slipping if you're being lazy or something at work and you're and your significant other notices that i i would want my significant other to call me on that stuff and i think we do in my relationship with, with my wife maddie um but kyle hit it on the, nail on the head that like there's a there's a line between being honest and keeping someone in check and just being fucking a dick and being mean and i think you know i i, I kind of understood okay like maybe he's just he wants the best for her, and he's trying to say, hey, like, you know, maybe you're slipping a little bit. I just want to let you know. But like the thing that kind of flipped me to like this guy's kind of a tool is he's sitting there talking about how other girls are hot, like in front of you. Like that to me, that's not that's not helping the situation. That's just him being a dick right into your face. So um, while I understand, like in relationship that you have to be honest, and I think that's healthy, there's a there's a very fine line between being a dick and being honest and trying to, you know, prop up your partner. I don't think that's what he's doing to you. And I'm not gonna sit here and tell you to break up with him, but there's a lot of shit I feel like that you guys got to work out if that's the case. If he's so comfortable going to you and being that mean to
3: you. Yeah, because you're in a relationship, like, you know, The Bachelor's on sometimes in my, uh, in the background of my house, I'm doing a puzzle or something. She's watching The Bachelor. I can't even remember if that's the show, but sometimes like girls are just like, it's very important uh, or guys even. It's like, you know, it's very important. Like bodies, we have to be, you know, bodies are really important to me. We have, but like, yeah, that's when you're starting out. But if you're, you know, three years into relationship, that's now your problem, guy. It's not necess- it's your problem to deal with it, not to just make it her problem and then walk away like hope hope you don't cry for the rest of your life. Like now it's your problem. If if like if being physically attractive is important and I think it is all important, but like in the beginning you get to like you know, you get to decide what you're going to do, but now you're 3 years in a relationship. If you want to stay with her, it's not just you don't just lay that at her feet. Like you got to worry worry about it, pal. Like it's not like you can't just say, "Yeah, I'm I'm not into this anymore, really, but still love you" and like, you know, See it for dinner. You can't just like lay that at her feet. That's like, that's something you're going to have to deal with. It sounds like he hasn't even really dealt with it. He just kind of said it and walked away. So that's just a red flag. Were you ever mean to your girlfriend, Kyle? No, I don't think so. No, you know I've go I've said some stuff in a fight that I was like, wow, I I could be good at this if I wanted to, but I'm sorry, really sorry about that. I won't say that again. But you're just quick, you're the takes. You're yeah, ready to go. I was always the uglier one in the relationship too. Like you know, dude, I date eight, <laughs> eight to tens. I was always the uh, I was always the uglier one. Eight to tens, Poughkeepsie tens, Scott? Hey man, I haven't had a ton of girlfriends. I pick and choose them, and sometimes they've been absolutely awful because of because of the. Uh, because of the personality part of it. But you know, the last well run the last four girlfriends have been pretty and awesome. They've been pretty awesome, if I say so myself. So, but I've always been the ugly Kyle's one. So I've, killing I've never it. been, yeah. I've never been uh the one who had to like say anything or even thought about has saying anything. Has anyone asked you to shave off a few LBs? No. Actually, no. Actually, no. I think I think I'd probably make a joke about myself or like, no, what are you talking about? It's like, oh, good, great. I'm glad I could continue being me.
0: I mean, look, we had Willie Colon on a couple of weeks ago and he said he weighed four thirty six. Is that what was that the number? Something big. Something and else. then he asked his wife and his wife's like, I don't know, you still look sexy to me, you know, and, and Willie Colon's obviously a huge guy. So he's going to carry four thirty six, perhaps a little differently than right. most of us would. <laughs> but still, four thirty six is fucking huge. Um, I think there's also like a part of this conversation where guys are just going, Hey, there's still a number. There's still a number, but I don't think any of this equates to the email. We're talking about 10 pounds. And the more I think about it, we're talking about a boyfriend that said, you're not hot. Now, the thing is, is like, I, I, if I am anything, I'm a pragmatist. Okay. If anybody would had to describe me in my whole way of looking at things, be like, you know what, first and foremost, he's just a pragmatist about everything. Like if I had daughters, and one came home and was crying because she said that she's not pretty enough. And then I'd say, whatever, you know. Through the eyes of caring about your daughter, you would see it in a, you know, the lens would be skewed. But I feel like I'd be going, well, you're not the prettiest girl in your class, Stacy. <laughs> I don't know if my daughter would name Stacy, but you know, like I, I think I'd just be. Because if you were your girlfriend, I mean, it's the same thing as somebody saying like John ja Morant. And I'd go, he's awesome, but he's not the best point guard in the NBA. Like, let's not lose our minds about this right now. Um, so you're I don't know
4: you're a realist.
0: Yeah, I don't think I would have a girlfriend ever say like, hey, am I the hottest girl you've ever seen? And I would go, well, cause that's ridiculous. There's three billion people on your side of things. Three plus billion. I think it's fun
3: to you say know? yes to that question. Be like now what? yeah you are I just what else that's my I
0: couldn't do it it's like going on first take and making up shit I couldn't sit there in a relationship and go you are the single hottest person I've ever seen in my entire life because I'd be like well now you know I lie so why why would I do that but he wasn't asked the question he wasn't posed any of these things he went out of his way to say hey you're not hot you're beautiful but you're not hot that's that's grounds for like going in another
4: direction honestly so did, did they know. say an age did she say an age of either of them or no
3: she didn't do the stats uh, she didn't do the 64 stats. i was just,
4: I'd just be interested if this was like somebody in their like early 20s or somebody in their like 30s i don't know because i think this look i'm telling you her
0: picture she's she's really cute i don't you know i'm not trying to she's young she looks like she's in her 20s i don't know there you go she shouldn't
4: uh i'd say have the hard talk and keep your options open I'd say yeah, see if guys know. think you're I, hot.
0: See what happens. I, I think this guy sucks. I think he sucks. And then who knows? I mean, what are we supposed to do here? Because like, what, what would we do? What if the email had a picture and she was attached? You're like, oh my God. And then you'd be like, hey, just write it out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But I think I think we've covered this from every realistic possibility um that that we could. Okay, uh Mr. Relationship over here helping everybody out one one email at a time. Uh, this is about an engagement ring, which I do actually have some experience in. All right, here we go. Thirty one male living in Northern California. Plan on popping the question next fall to my girlfriend of about four years. My main goal of the proposal is I have to uh the main goal of the proposal is it To have it be a complete surprise. And because of that, I'm having somewhat of a difficult time figuring out what to do about the engagement ring. The topic came up randomly a few weeks ago, and she was talking about how she has no idea what she would even want whenever that time came a diamond. Alternative stone, something completely unique, basically no clue at all. Basically, her point was that she she wouldn't know until she shopped around to get an idea exactly what she wanted. Totally fine. But that severely limits what I would be comfortable picking out. I know the common thing people do is go pick out a ring together before the engagement. I hate that idea because it just feels weird to go buy a ring and then say, all right, now I'll wait for your proposal. Uh, wink, wink. Uh, I'm sure someone would suggest just go shopping. But main goal for me is to be a surprise. So that's out of the question. Here's a couple scenarios I thought of where I would want all of your guys advice. Do I get a fake ring that's super cheap, but still looks real enough to pass in photos for the time being? No,
4: absolutely not. Yeah,
0: Absolutely not. Because she's gonna Terrible have a fake idea. ring. And then you, it's two <laughs> weeks later. And she's like, hey, I'm engaged. And every fucking person well, female is gonna say, let me see the ring. And then their first impression of the ring is going to be something she's not wearing or whatever. So that's out. Do I have her sister's friends try to sneakily get a better idea of what she wants and take a stab at getting something she might like and then make sure I'm getting from a place, uh, getting info from a place that will allow or getting the ring from a place that will allow an exchange if she ends up hating it? I've seen this uh, as a recommended option. So it seems like it's a common thing. Okay. Uh, He also said, I love you. Very. Okay. Yeah. All right what to do here okay uh think of it first of all this way all right imagine if the tradition was if women had to buy us fancy watches all right if we had if they had to get us Rolexes. good luck right now secondary market is, okay i mean just imagine if the women listening to this if in your 20s and you're with a guy that you really liked and it's been two or three years and you know he's the one but tradition says that you have to spend like twenty thousand dollars on a rolex and oh, by the way, make it a fucking surprise. Uh, and if it wasn't a Rolex, maybe it's an AP, maybe it's a, a higher-end Panerai. You know, maybe it's it's something not where a fossil. It's yeah, no, no disrespect to any of the fossil line or had diesel. many a fossil watch growing up. Yeah, yeah. but Citizen. It, it just tradition says this has to sting a little bit financially, and you have to stress about how are you going to pay for this you know, again, Rolex is very in price, um, but secondary market, everything's nuts. So let's say 20 grand for a decent one. Oh, and by the way, and this is for the guys, she buys you that watch and you're like, "Ugh, she got the yellow gold two tone. (laughs) Like what is this? What, are we under 40 millimeters on this? Like, what is this? Okay. And then you're supposed to wear it and be psyched all the time. You wouldn't be, there'd always be this lingering thing if you didn't exactly get what you want. So I still think the most important thing is like you were saying here, figuring out a way to get the thing she wants, but that you still want to make it a surprise. So I've thought about this email. I've thought about it. Um, cause you know, I've had some experience with this, both having the ring and then also not having it. Um, I think there's a way to do this. Okay. You said that she has, um, didn't he say friends and sisters in here? Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's good. You're going to marry somebody who has friends. It's always, it's a different email topic. We'll get into maybe some other time, but, uh, I, I I thought this out. All right, here's the plan. So whether it's the sisters, whether it's the friends, get yourself in a group situation where you end up in a mall, but a higher end mall. All right. Maybe there's a Tiffany's or something like that. Okay. And you have one of the girls, who's her friend, okay, you and her have already talked and the plan is is this and don't take too long with this because there's always a couple bad actors in the group. So maybe keeping the group smaller is better because there's always gonna be somebody that's just bad at this shit. They, they get weird and they have anxiety. I remember like pledging and the brothers would be lying to us about something and then everybody always wanted to be involved in the thing that they were lying to us about and then the more people, more, more ingredients you threw in the fucking pot... <laughs> there'd be a couple guys who'd be like, wait, none of this is real. This guy's the worst actor I've ever seen. This this is bullshit. So, all right, that part is important because you got to have some people you can trust here. If, If one of them is single, I think you go, you're at the counter, you pretend you're having a miserable time. They're like, let's just go into Tiffany's, whatever. We just want to be in there. Maybe she has a return. Maybe she's going to have something where she's like, hey, can I get this serviced or whatever? And then you slowly kind of magically mosey over to some of the engagement rings. You start looking at them. And it actually could be a cool moment for you and your future wife where you're looking at each other. Because clearly you've been together four years. You've talked about being together. You're looking at her. She's looking at you. And you're just like, yeah, whatever. Like, look at them. You know, I don't care. Maybe I'll just go to the other room. Like, you know, and it's not you being dismissive of getting engaged, but now she is looking at stuff with her friend, all right, in a way that seems completely, um, organic, you know, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, exactly, Kyle, perfect, perfect, a very organic setting where it just, it kind of happened, even though it's a bit more choreographed than that, all right, and in that time, the friends, the sisters, whoever, a couple of the other girls, they start getting an eye of what she likes. Now, I'm not saying then you have to go back two days later and ruin your down payment on a house at, a, on, at Tiffany's, which is always a nice part of the tradition. It's like, hey, do you want somewhere to live? No, my friend has a hot ring, and I want to also have an awesome ring. It's like, okay, cool. We're going to rent for five more years. Like, this fucking tradition is <laughs> awesome. Um,
3: <laughs> to tell your dad so, to get ready with that wedding payment.
0: Right, right. So I, I think there is a way to do this. Um, But you just have to have people that you can trust in the mix other than just saying, all right, this feels probably elaborate to some other than just saying, hey, to her friend, can you go and shop for rings with her out of nowhere? Because if that happens or maybe she can pull the hey, we ended up going to Tiffany's because I want to get something serviced, you know, a bracelet or whatever. And uh or just any jeweler. I mean, it doesn't have to be there, but there there can be a way that you could do this, whether you're a part of it or not a part of it. I know people are going to argue about that whole thing. I'm just telling you, there's a way to do it without it being so obvious where her friend is saying, hey, let's go to the local jewelers and see what you would like for engagement rings because then that's going uh, to det- detract, I should say, from the surprise element that you are so determined to pull off, which I also
3: kind of respect that you're trying to figure out that element, I guess yeah i respect that too i always thought like i've i've ruined every christmas gift for a significant other for the last two three years um well it's only been one person so yeah i've ruined it for like every year i'm always like ah, i got you the dyson thing i hope you like it. um whichever <laughs> you got that, your girlfriend it, a vacuum no in no your no 20s? no first of all i got the vacuum um that was a while ago but i heard that the dyson hair products are like the ps5 for girls and they all agree yes okay with you yeah. kyle you're right yeah.
0: that's right because as i said it out loud i'm like wait he's probably talking about the hair Yeah. so they good, they, they that's all on me. so
3: i've ruined i've ruined the stuff for you know three years and I'm, I'm fine with it but i always thought the real surprise was um where you do it like you're don't you want to catch her off guard on the actual question like so what if she knows that the, she can't have the ring until you give it to her? So who gives a fuck if she knows what it looks like? I can see why you care about that, but I think yeah, I think the way if if that's if this is Mission Impossible and we're really trying to keep this thing under wraps, I think that's the way that you do it ryan's thing is 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 spot on i i thought maybe you know there's a girl who's like way more her friend than she would ever be to keeping your secret and be like oh my god he wants he wants me to help him just tell me what you want like there's always a chance that you pick the wrong person and she's just like oh my god he he's he asking me to find the ring so why don't you just tell me the ring you want and i'll make sure like she's acting like she's doing you a favor but she's actually more of on her yeah, side no where great she's point. just like great addition the jig is up yep. But um I I think either way it's fine because you still are in the position you still have all the control as to um creating the scenario where you actually want to offer her the ring. So I think that's probably the bigger part. But again, not married, Saruta, so you probably should have gone first.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'll just I'll tell you what I did. Uh basically Maddie and I went to uh, Sky, Mall. Boston. Sky Mall, <laughs> yep, we went to... No, um, I'm just thinking the the like how, real,
0: yeah. <laughs> how realistic you would have been. You'd be like, okay, let's pick something out. Where I, not, I'm not talking about the money element of it. Just no, the, no. Go ahead, I,
4: sorry. I, 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 my words of advice would be, I didn't hear anything about what she wanted. All you said was that she didn't know what she wanted in a ring, right? He didn't yeah. say how how she wanted to figure that out. So you should probably... Put some feelers out there about whether or not she wants to go ring shopping or not because i know it like it isn't like the amazing ring surprise that everybody wants but it's the most practical way to do it and the way that we did it was kind of cool because you go to this place it's an awesome place in boston i won't give them any pub but it's hit me up dm me if you really want to know and you know you look at a bunch of different settings um, a bunch of different things, and you basically make a list of like things that she likes. Right? She didn't tell me exactly the ring that she wanted, but like you know, she's like, "Oh, I like the rose gold, or I like this setting, I like this style of, I like these couple styles of of rocks." And then what you do is you buy the ring and you buy the diamond separate. They put it together and they mail it to you. So you're basically building this ring. Um, like so I felt like I had some say. It's basically build a bear for rings. Exactly. Girls love build a bear. Um, and and Kyle's right. It really is more about the setting, I think, than it is the ring. Like, and and here's the thing. If she doesn't like the ring and you just because you wanted to, like, you know, go wild card and do this thing organically, that's going to be a bummer. Like, it's going to be a pretty big bummer when she looks at it. It's like, oh, my God, you got me an oval ring. Like, why would you Why why?" You know, she's never going to say that. But, you know, you'll see the disappointment in her face. and It's going to kind of ruin the moment. So I would ask her. If she wants to go ring shopping first, because again, it's not all about you in the situation. I know that you have your plan. You want to do this. But the surprise is what Kyle said, the timing of it, where you do it, getting her family and friends involved, like the the, the Instagram post afterwards. All that stuff is still really cool, even if you don't completely um, pick out the ring 100% by yourself.
0: Uh, yeah, see, I knew you were going to be so practical about it. This guy cares about the surprise, so we can't lose focus of what the email is. He cares about the surprise. Now, when he said, like, I don't know if I go non-traditional or something else, I would just get rid of all that stuff because I still think the diamond that, you know, was done right is going to be the winner in all of this because unless you, I mean, you better get total clearance from somebody who's like, actually, she doesn't want a diamond. She wants to go non-traditional stone. She wants something completely <laughs> She wants different. a black wedding ring, yeah. too. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know so that like i don't i don't know what to do with you on that one and yeah i agree suri like you i just knew that you and your wife would be super practical about it not worry about the surprise but this guy wants to pull off the surprise so he's gonna have to figure out some moves here on the chessboard i
4: i I just think about like your scenario i'm like when is the last time like four or five people went to a mall together like it's just it just it it, it seems sketchy to me to begin with like you know what i mean like i don't think there's any way to do this sort of naturally um Other than, you know, why don't you just why don't you just ask her like just because you ask her a couple of questions about what she might like doesn't mean that she knows what ring you're buying her. It's like it's like when you're talking about like wedding dresses and stuff and you're like, oh, is it poofy or is it not poofy? Like you can give a couple of details and still be surprised by what the bride looks like. So I would say it's okay to ask her a couple of questions and then make the guess from there. But don't go in blind. Just don't do that because it's a terrible idea. Uh, you,
0: You don't think people go to the mall anymore. Just, I don't.
3: I, no. I think it matters where you live, probably. As if the as malls, groups of people, upper echelon, maybe though. I don't know. Can me a fucking mall run?
4: I know. I, 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 I know you and Bushman. <laughs> you loved your mall trips back in the day. <laughs> I, well,
0: we were at West Harvard. We didn't have a lot of options. We get to the point where Bushman and I were going to the mall and not doing it. <laughs> <You> just <we laughs> mall dude. Like, do you? like do you just want to go to the mall. Be like yeah, let's go. We walk around. I already, I already bought every sneaker I could have possibly bought. There was nothing at Nordstrom for me anymore. Um, that Nordstrom didn't do it for me. Although Hunish Jeweler, there you go. Ask ask them. There's a little shout out to those guys. Yeah. So they're back in uh Boston and in Connecticut. So. And New York. But hey, look at this. Kipsy galleries. All right. So we're we're giving them I I'm pretty sure we'll all right here's the, the deal you're going to that. the
3: poughkeepsie gallery a melting pot just kidding it's closed but just you know there, there's a there's a there might, there might be a fun exciting restaurant that you could be yeah, like
0: why not a cheesecake you can't do a cheesecake thing and then kind of mosey over and be like oh I have to return something and then you know it's one or two of her friends and then you kind of you know I don't know what your acting chops are but you could be like oh my god <laughs> uh, you guys are looking at rings okay okay ladies take it easy right and then you know you get a little info from them after they do a little window shopping and the the ruse is over. And then it can be a great story. You can tell at your rehearsal. Yeah, somebody will tell Friday. that story for sure. Yeah, like remember when we went ring shopping, you didn't know you were going ring shopping? And then some other guy <laughs> would be like, are these the only, these the only memories they have? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, man. All right. Uh, I don't know if we
4: did anything well today. The tool recap was good. No, i think we did it. i think we did a good outside of the awkwardness of the first of the intro to the first email i think the first email we we gave some good advice there
0: yeah look i've been doing this a long time it still throws us off because we want to when we get a female question it's like we just don't want to come off as, as we just shirts. all froze up yeah, yeah. We, we just we, you know clearly be cool be cool yeah relax dude relax <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, we'll be back on Friday, and I'm not—we get a couple feelers out, but uh, today was a lot of fun. Today was a lot of fun. Uh, I cannot emphasize how great that Wu Tang book is. So, I hope you enjoyed that interview as well. Talk to you Friday.
2: This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios Kingdom and the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom and the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.